Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is on all of the personality disorders. I'm going to talk about all of the personality disorders in this episode, all 10 of the personality disorders in the DSM, plus four other personality disorders that are not included in the DSM, but should be. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're not a patron, you need to become one to hear this whole episode. This episode is kind of like a continuing education episode for clinicians, and so I thought I would just have it be for patrons of the podcast. Um, I'm going to go into full detail on each. I mean, I'm not going to go into – it's not a deep dive for each personality disorder, but it's a deep dive on personality disorders in general. I've spent my entire career studying and treating personality disorders. It's very complicated. I can look back to graduate school and beyond and remember how little I understood about personality disorders early in my career. It's hard to learn. And research shows this, that therapists and clinicians have a hard time understanding personality disorders. And sometimes they don't know that they don't understand personality disorders. Uh, I can't remember this one uh, study specifically, uh, the specific percentages, but something like half of clinicians misdiagnose narcissistic personality disorder, even though it's one of the most common ones. Uh, you need to work with these people for months, if not years, to get to know the personality disorder. It, to really understand it, you have to be with those people. And you have to get to know them inside and out. You can't learn about personality disorders from reading a book or lectures or vignettes. It helps, but you really have to experience these people. And you also have to know what to look for. You know, a lot of these people end up in therapy and a lot of clinicians are exposed to these people. But unless the clinician knows that this person suffers from the personality disorder, they don't necessarily know what they're looking at. And they're often misdiagnosed and misunderstood. There's a lot of misinformation out there, particularly on the internet. And a lot of clinicians avoid these people because they've been brainwashed into thinking that they're evil or that they're untreatable. And it's just not true at all. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about schizoid, schizotypal, paranoid, antisocial, narcissistic, borderline, histrionic, avoidant, dependent, obsessive, compulsive personality disorder, passive aggressive personality disorder, psychopathic personality disorder, sadistic, and masochistic personality disorder. Um, And I'm also going to go into detail on the central trauma for each of these disorders, the presentations, the symptoms, and also the countertransference, because that was, (laughs) I originally started this episode just uh, answering upper tier patron Angela's question about uh, what does countertransference feel like with the various different clusters of personality disorders. And so I I was just going to answer it in like a 10-minute format, but I couldn't help myself. uh, As I started looking into it, I was like, oh, I should just do, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more detail, maybe a little bit more. (laughs) And then before long, I had been thinking and researching and taking notes for, I don't know, a couple of weeks and <laughs> a 10-minute episode turned into this. And so we'll see how, how long this takes. Um, so uh, if again, if you're not a patron, go to patreon.com, go to Psychology in Seattle, become a patron of the podcast. You'll get 
instructions on how to access this episode, along with hundreds of others of our best episodes, in which I go into detail on various different things, including deep dives on some of these episode on some of these um, disorders. I, I can't remember my narcissistic personality disorder length, but I think it's like ten hours long. My histrionic, my borderline avoidant personality, passive aggressive. I go into detail on all these. Anyway, so if you're not a patron, do it now. Join us. Do it. Do it. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Love you so much. So let's get into this here. Uh, let's look at the clusters uh, because that's often how they're presented. And I, I actually don't like the clusters. They don't make a lot of sense to me for the most part. I think they're an antiquated way of looking at the personality disorders. Uh, maybe they make sense to other people, but they don't make sense to me. But I thought I'd talk about it anyway because that's how it's presented in the DSM. It's often how it's talked about. So let's talk about cluster A, uh, which is the so-called odd and eccentric cluster of personality disorders. This cluster includes schizoid, schizotypal, and paranoid. These are, you know, like they said, people will say that they're odd and eccentric and this doesn't make sense to me in terms of uh, the designation. Schizotypal, for sure. They are absolutely considered odd and eccentric uh, to others. By the way, this is uh, similar uh, to schizophrenia, for sure, which I'll get into in a second. But schizoid, no. I, I, odd and eccentric, maybe. Maybe a little bit, for sure. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily say odd and eccentric. Schizotypal, for sure. Schizoid, yeah. Paranoid, no. <laughs> Paranoid personality disorder people are not odd and eccentric. I mean, aside from the way that they, that they see the world, but uh, I wouldn't call them eccentric, particularly in if we're using the word odd and eccentric to describe schizotypal, yeah, absolutely, which I'll get into. But anyway, I think that it, it was originally categorized like this, and this is just my take on it, my speculation, is that Schizophrenia was a very focused on diagnosis back in the day. In fact, a lot of our theories come from early research on how to treat schizophrenia. Today, most clinicians might not even experience a client with schizophrenia. For example, me, I don't know if I've ever worked with someone who had schizophrenia. I've worked with people who have had psychosis, particularly with bipolar, but not, not just schizophrenia. I've had people with psychos psychosis uh, induced by drug abuse. But again, uh, there was a lot of focus on schizophrenia back in the day when they started making these clusters. And I think that they found these personality disorders and they're like, well, they're all, all, all three of these personality disorders seem kind of like schizophrenia. Schizotypal seems definitely kind of like schizophrenia. And that I would agree with. Schizoid, since they're so isolated and emotionally stunted, that's kind of like that's kind of like schizophrenia. To me, uh, without going into the full detail, this doesn't seem related to schizophrenia at all. Schizotypal definitely seems related to schizophrenia. Schizoid, no, maybe kind of. Paranoid, no. I mean, again, a lot of people with schizophrenia will have paranoia, and a lot of people with psychosis will have paranoia. But paranoid personality disorder is just a completely different thing. It'd be like saying people with borderline are, you know, it's close to schizophrenia. No, I, to me, it's a completely different uh, genesis to the disorder. Uh, but anyway, 
So, so that's what we're in. We're in cluster A where we're talking about schizoid, schizotypal, and paranoid. And some people consider them all three of them to be similar to schizophrenia. I do not. But let's go into schizoid first. So um, the symptoms of schizoid are being very detached from other people and very indifferent to other people. And this is key because there's a lot of people who are detached people with avoidant personality disorder, which I'll get into in a second, people who are socially anxious, they will often detach and become isolated from others. But these other people, they want to be involved with others. Schizoid, they don't care. They don't want to be involved with others. They're detached and they might be socially anxious, but deep down, they, they're just completely indifferent to other people. These people also have a limited range of emotional expression even of feeling emotions. Uh, as a result, they will pull away from other people and isolate from a very early age and thus become socially awkward and isolated because they just don't learn how to get along with other people. They often live alone, spend all their time alone. They will come across as being very cold and, and aloof. They rarely come into therapy and they probably don't talk very much. And they also might lack insight into their issue, meaning that they kind of look around as like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm indifferent to others, but you know, other people are stupid for being interested in other people. I don't understand why other people are so interested in each other. It just doesn't make any – it's illogical, that kind of thing. So schizoid person is detached and indifferent. That's the key to remember. They're, they're very isolated and they're happy, which – you know, questions the notion of it being a disorder, right? It could just be a neurodiversity issue that some people are just born. Seemingly, schizoid actually seems quite genetic. And they're born just not very interested in other people. And sometimes these people are mistaken for being autistic and uh, they're not. It's a completely different thing. And it's considered a personality disorder potentially because early childhood traumas can can cause this. Neglect early in life can cause this for sure. Um, so, so yeah. The, now, these people are rarely discussed clinically because, like I said, they rarely show up to th therapy. If anything, the only reason why they'd end up in therapy is because someone's forcing them. Maybe a family member that is worried about them, that, that sort of thing. It's very rare that someone with schizoid would, one, think there's something wrong with them, and two, seek help from another human being because it's totally counter to how they see the world. All right, let's go to schizotypal personality disorder. So again, along with schizoid, this disorder is very different from other personality disorders. I, I consider schizotypal to be the most non-personality disorder among the personality disorders. <laughs> um, I consider it to be basically on the schizophrenia spectrum, um, but let's go into it. Schizotypal is considered by many to be very similar to schizoid. Uh, they often kind of get lumped in together, possibly because they have a similar word, schizoid and schizotypal, uh, but also because schizotypal people tend to be very isolated. But the similarities end there. And really, no one should consider schizoid and schizotypal to be similar uh, other than the fact that they're socially isolated. But so are avoidant personality disorder people, which I'll get into later. Uh, they're often very isolated as well. But we don't consider that them to be in the same category as schizotypal and schizoid. But anyway, so schizotypal people are often very socially anxious, 
isolated. They're uncomfortable around others. They're awkward. But the key is, is that schizotypal and avoidant personality sort of people are not indifferent to others. That's the key to schizoid is that schizoid is you're indifferent. You don't care. You're isolated and you like it that way. You don't want to be with other people. Schizotypal and avoidant personality, they want to be with other people deep down. Now, they might convince themselves that they don't. They might they might tell themselves, no, I don't care about others. But really deep down, when they really are honest with themselves, they actually do want acceptance. They want friends. They want relationships. They do want to get along with others. So schizotypal, often uh, very isolated. Um, but again, that's where the similarities behaviorally end with schizoid. So really separate those things. Schizotypal people will have mild hallucination, mild hallucinations and odd beliefs and odd behavior. This is why it's similar to schizophrenia. People with uh, schizotypal, they might ha have uh, lights that flash in their vision. They might see shadows in the corners of their eyes. They might hear voices, but they're mild. They're not as strong as schizophrenia. I had a client who thought that the streetlights were shifting and changing in response to them. And the way they talk about it, it, it comes across to you as something that's not quite a full-blown hallucination, but also very odd. You'll hear it and you'll be like, huh. Because uh, when I've had clients with schizotypal, at first, when they describe their hallucinations – it sounds like something that we all experience. You know, all of us will have moments where we might think we see something out of the corner of our eyes, or we might think that something kind of shifts in our vision or something, right? And uh, people with schizotypal will talk about their hallucinations sometimes in this, along these lines. Because, of course, if they said full blown, like, you know, I saw a crowd of people and I interacted with them and, of, and other people around them were like, no, no, there was no one around them. Then that's just a full-blown hallucination and then we're looking at a full-blown psychotic disorder. People with schizotypal, it's more of like a belief system about uh, seeing things. It's not it, – it's hard to distinguish whether or not they really see the things or they just think they see the things if that makes sense. And that's why it's categorized as a personality disorder is that it, it it's believed that it's in the direction of hallucination but more of like the way you see the world. Like as an example, um, all of us could – you know, let's say you just decide for a day that every visual and auditory anomaly that you experience, you're just going to assume that it's something much bigger than that. You – think you see something out of the corner of your eye. And normally you'd just be like, oh, I, I just, I don't know, something just happened over there. But you just go with it in your mind. You're just like, ooh, I, you know, the aliens are trying to communicate with me. Well, if you did that uh, over and over and over again, and, and it was a part of your personality to see the world that way, then you might really believe that you're seeing things or that things are being communicated to you. This is why it's considered a personality disorder. I hope that makes sense. Uh, people with schizotypal also have very odd beliefs. They have – they're, you know, quote-unquote magical thinking, not in a good way, by the way. People say, oh, magical thinking, that sounds nice. No, it's usually self-destructive and weird and not helpful to them. Obviously, there can be pros to it, but 
there's always a lot of cons to it, meaning that it gets in the way of their work and their relationships and this kind of thing. Um, they might believe that, that people can read their thoughts, which again is a very similar thing to schizophrenia. But again, it's more of a part of their personality, not a part of an organic problem. It, you know, For example, with schizotypal medication often doesn't work because you can't medicate a personality. With schizophrenia, you can medicate it and reduce the symptoms and eliminate the symptoms often. But with schizotypal, it's much harder. Now, I won't go into the whole medication thing, but just you know, keep that in mind. Um, people with schizotypal might believe that everyone is out to get them or everyone knows that they're weird or, like I said, the street signs are trying to tell them something. Also, people with schizotypal will have odd behavior, and it really varies from person to person. But they're often based on their odd belief systems. They might move in odd ways. They might talk in odd ways. So because they see the world in this very different way as something that is magical or shifting or that, you know there's energies or the air is doing something around them, they, and, and they develop a whole weird, odd way of seeing the world. And again, again because their personality is oriented that way, they will start to involve behaviors in, that reflect that odd belief system. So while in public, they might feel like energy is happening in the world, and so they have to move their arms in a particular way to kind of harness that energy or to protect themselves from the energy. And as with all personality disorders, uh, people with schizotypal lack insight, meaning that when someone tells them, you know, it's possible that the signs aren't actually trying to tell you something, they'll they'll look at you like you're crazy. They're just like, uh, what? <laughs> you you're dumb. The signs are definitely trying to tell me something. And again, this is why it's also indicative of personality disorder because with schizophrenia, uh, if your mild symptom, if you you know, if your symptoms are mild, and or you're being medicated effectively. People with schizophrenia will absolutely look back at their previous episodes of psychosis and say, whoa, I was psychotic. I had hallucinations. I had weird beliefs. And yeah, I had, I had delusions that I was Jesus and now I don't. So with schizotypal, often the person, no matter how much you try, they never accept that their way of thinking is – debatable. Uh, now, there are exceptions for sure because it's not like um, personality disorders are set in stone and there's a, there's a matter of degree. So if you, if you had a mild case of schizotypal, then the chance of having insight increases for sure. Okay. Um, all right. Actually, so uh, let's – I was going to talk about countertransference. Um, so let me go back to schizoid. So the, again, the schizoid person, very detached, very indifferent. The countertransference – you're rarely going to experience this because um, they rarely come to therapy, but they might be forced into therapy. You might get like a 16-year-old schizoid client who comes is forced by their parents to come in. Um, and the way that you'll typically feel with these people is that you'll feel like you don't matter and you'll feel like you're a bad therapist because the client is just not interested in you and they're cold and aloof and – you know everything that you do to try to connect with them socially right from the beginning is just not going to work, and you're just going to feel like 
you're going to feel worthless. Like you, you have no charm, you have no skills, and that sort of thing. With schizotypal, with the mild hallucinations and odd beliefs, um, you. Uh, the, so another thing here that I forgot to mention about schizotypal is that often with schizotypal, uh, so let me back up. So a schizoid. Uh, they are isolated from others because they're indifferent to others. They don't care. Uh, they, it's not like they don't have empathy. They're just not interested in interacting. It's sort of like for me, I'm not interested in hunting, for example. I don't I don't want to get a shotgun and shoot ducks. It doesn't interest me. Uh, if someone asked me to do it, I'd probably be like, eh, it actually doesn't sound so great. I'm indifferent or even hostile to hunting. I don't want to do it. Um, and schizoid people, they're that way about interacting with humans. It's just not a preference. I and mean, they'd rather not. They was like, no. You know. And to force me to hunt uh, or something worse that's you know, just really – I just hate I don't know, running a marathon or something – um, I'm going to resist it the whole time, and I'm never going to like it. And I, you know, I might do it because you might force me, but I'm never going to like it. And as soon as I get a chance, I'm going to I'm going to avoid running a marathon because I just don't want to. So, and you know, you runners out there are going to be like, well, you just don't know until you try. Now, I've my whole life I've been an athlete, um, particularly in the beginning of my life, and I know I hate running long distances, um, even like a mile. I just can't stand. <laughs> There's just something about it. I think it has to do with my highly sensitive person status. But anyway. So uh, schizotypal, uh, these people will avoid relationships and other humans because other people are scary to them. So they – because of their weird belief system, they believe that uh, others are out to harm them or that others know that they're weird and others know that they are strange individuals. And so when – Schizotypal people come into your office again, usually because they're forced, similar to schizoid, is because they will they will react to you as if you are scary. They will often react to you like you are a terrifying human being. Now they might do it in a very subtle way. Uh, they might be very shy, and you might try to open them up and say, "Hey, you know." What's going on? And they might, you know, the, the the clients that I worked with, a common presentation was for them just to stare at the ground, and they, you know, they're just uh, mumbling to themselves. They're mumbling to me, staring at the ground, and you know, just really, really quiet. Uh, with some uh, schizotypal clients, I'd have to get really, really close to them because I couldn't hear them uh, sitting just in my normal distance from clients. I'd have to get my head down and forward really close to them so I could hear what they were saying. And every sentence was like, you know, a very difficult thing for it to come out. You know, one way to think about schizotypal is that it's uh, arrested development to when you're very young. You know, when when children are very young, they can be extremely scared of strangers or even of people in their family. You know, they might only relate to maybe their mother and everyone else is is scary to them. It comes across kind of like that. Another thing that young children will have is magical thinking, right? That uh, it's not a, a, you know, a leap for them to believe that the signs are trying to talk to them or that you know, people can read their thoughts or something. It's, 
it's they have a hard time understanding reality, differentiating reality from uh, from magical thinking or just their own ideas about how the world works. And so, one possible way of thinking about schizotypal is that it someone is stuck in that space for their entire life, and it ends up plaguing them. You know, if you took a two year old, remember Big with Tom Hanks? He the the kid was ten or something, twelve, can't remember. Well, imagine if you had big with like a two-year-old or a three-year-old. That would be a terrifying movie, right? <laughs> a three-year-old boy gets transported into an adult body or, you know, grows up suddenly and becomes big, goes to work and is now having to interact with people. And the way the three-year-old sees the world is Santa Claus and magical thinking and strangers are terrifying like – if you try to convince a three-year-old that other people can be trusted, that's a hard sell. You know, like say you're going to the mall with your three-year-old and you're going to interact with a bunch of other kids and a bunch of parents. And you sit down with the kid and you're like, look, we're going to go to the mall. There's going to be a lot of strangers. All of them can be trusted. I know you're worried about them, but, you know, don't worry about them. You know, take it from me. You can trust all these people. Well, you're not going to convince a three-year-old, right? You bring them to the mall, they're going to be like, um, you know, uh, they're, it's, they're just going to look at you like you're crazy. Like, no, no. I, okay, I hear your words saying that these strangers are to be trusted, but um, I know that they cannot be trusted. These people are terrifying. Okay, so that's one way to think about – I don't know if I like that way of thinking about schizotypal as, a, as if it's an arrested development. Um, but it is, you know, one way to perhaps keep in mind as you try to conceptualize it. All right. Um, so again, countertransference with schizotypal, you might feel like you're very scary, like you're a very scary presence. You might feel rejected. You might feel like you're harming the client with your own judgment, this kind of thing. Because schizotypal people, the reason why they will distance is because they're afraid, because they're convinced other people believe bad things about them, which makes it similar to avoidant personality disorder. Um, and that's another key that I probably should emphasize is that people with schizotypal often are totally convinced that everyone around them understands how weird they are and that they're rejectable. Anyway, so as we can see, schizotypal, pretty complex, a lot of different things in there. Schizoid, not very complex, pretty easy, detached and indifferent from others. Schizotypal, a whole set of things that it's... The, don't really feel like they fit together. But when you actually meet people with schizotypal, you're like, oh, wow, this is a thing. When you meet people and work with schizotypal people, which I have, you're like, yeah, I get why they put this in the DSM because this is definitely a thing. And it's weird how that these symptoms hang together, the hallucinations, the belief system, the the, the social anxiety, the, the odd behavior, all that kind of stuff. All right. So let's go on to uh, – par- and, and just to chime in here for a second – you know, I'm going over all the symptoms. These people are suffering greatly. Schizotypal. Schizoid, maybe not so much. Schizotypal, these people are in a constant state of suffering. I mean, it is no fun to be schizotypal. You might have uh, moments where you're doing okay. And if you're mild, if you have a mild case, you might actually be just a little odd and have a little bit of hallucinations and manage to live life okay. But um, the people that I experienced with schizotypal were um, suffering greatly. They would sit around home by themselves and just beat themselves up for all the 
terrible things that they think everyone was thinking about them. It was really, it was really sad to see and very difficult to treat. And as a, as a human who, you know, schizotypal people had ideas about what was in my head, right? So in order for me to help them, I needed them to trust me, but their disorder made it almost impossible for them to trust me. It's very hard to work with people like this. And, um, but, you know, I did my best. <laughs> and I had some success with some people. I mean, uh, success meaning that I might be able to help them function in life. They, their schizotypal disorder stays with them, of course, but the ability to function in the world actually was made possible. But it was a lot of work and they needed a lot of support from outside people. All right. Still in cluster A, our third cluster A personality disorder, paranoid personality disorder. All right. So the rest of the personality disorders I'm going to go, go into I think are, are it, what I consider to be pure personality disorders. Schizoid, like I said, indifferent and, dis, and disengaged from other people. I don't know if I consider that so much a personality disorder. It's definitely a personality difference. But I don't know, you know, why we want to uh, disorder that. Um, uh, it, it depends, of course. There are some people that are distanced and their lives are falling apart because of it. But uh, that one just feels a little funny. Schizoid definitely seems on the spectrum of schizophrenia. It's almost like ongoing, persistent, mild schizophrenia. But paranoid and all the rest of the personalities I'm going personality disorders I'm going into are definitely disorders of the personality that are derived from trauma. All right, so let's talk about paranoid personality disorder. So with all the rest, I'm going to talk about trauma and what the central trauma is, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of reduce it a little bit, which might not be so great, but uh, I think it helps to have a heuristic around this. So the trauma, the central trauma to paranoid personality disorder is being schemed against. So people with paranoid personality disorder, when they were very young, they learned that in order to attain safety as a two-year-old, they needed to, one, vigilantly assume that they are in the process of being schemed against and harmed, and two, constantly fight against those schemes. So it's hard to imagine what that would look like when you're two years old, three years old, but you're probably being abused. You're probably being neglected. And there's evidence that your caregivers are actually trying to hurt you. They're on a campaign to harm you. Now, what what might that look like to a two-year-old? Well, to a two-year-old, it might look like a lot of deceptiveness where the parents are saying, I'm sorry that I couldn't feed you today or I'm sorry that I couldn't be there or I'm sorry that I locked you in the room for all night and wouldn't let you out. And the reason is because there was a monster in the house and I was trying to protect you. And then the kid, uh, you know, a few weeks later overhears the parent saying, yeah, I have this trick that I play on my kid where I say there's a monster and I, that, that, that's what keeps him in the room. This is just a very specific example. But so the two-year-old, three-year-old learns, oh, so I'm being harmed and my parent is kind of on this Machiavellian mission against me. My, my parent isn't just randomly harmful to me. My parent is on a campaign against me and that's that's why I'm being harmed because my parent is 
is hates me and is trying to hurt me and making plans against me. So that's why I say that the, the central trauma is being schemed against. Okay, now. Some kids will perceive themselves as being schemed against when they actually were not schemed against. An example might be that a kid is being sexually abused and they believe that they're – say they're being sexually abused by their grandma and they believe that their whole family is in on it even though their family is not in on it. Uh, For for whatever reason, they just perceive that to be true and – then they can develop paranoid personality disorder because their central trauma is this notion falsely uh, derived that their entire family was scheming against them so that uh, their grandma could abuse them. All right. So because of that trauma, uh, people with paranoid personality disorder, they assume that others are out to harm them. Family members, friends, coworkers, politicians, everyone, people close to them in their life, People that don't know them, people on the street, the bus driver, the president of the United States, they assume that that everyone is out to get them. And there's no doubt in their minds. They are extremely distrustful and suspicious of other people, which often results in them being hostile, which often provokes other people to be hostile towards them, which confirms their paranoia, right? So paranoid personality disorder is actually close to borderline personality disorder. Borderline people tend to be only worried about people close to them, people you know, like spouses or friends or family members, and not like necessarily uh, acquaintances and distant co- coworkers. Paranoid personality disorder—it's everyone. Everyone is out to get them, regardless of how close they are. But even but if you are close to them, they're very likely to think you're out to get them, and they might uh, preemptively attack others because they just assume that they're going to get attacked. And so they put a lot of effort into protecting themselves from the harm of others. And again, uh, you know, there's two things. Parent, uh, per, so the, all the rest of the personality disorders are a defense to gain attachment security. That's my, that's my contention. Uh, um, not everyone sees personality disorders that way, but in all of my travels, it's always been true about all the ones I'm going to, you know, schizoid, I'm not so sure, schizotypal, not quite so sure, but all the rest of the personality disorders. Uh, maybe sadism is off the list too. I'll get into that later. But most of the rest of the personality disorders are you're being traumatized as a young person and you have to develop a way of reacting to that to protect yourself, to gain as much attachment security and and distress management as you can get. So because you're being schemed against, you learn, okay, I have to be vigilant about people scheming against me. And two, I have to constantly fight those schemes that are happening. And the reason why as a kid you developed that is because it was true. People were constantly scheming against you or at least they were doing bad things to you. And so this vigilance and fighting against the harm was rational when you were three. When you're 35 – not rational anymore. People with paranoid personality disorder, as with all personality disorders, lack insight and they lack a sense of self. Sense of self meeting. They they aren't in connection with their emotional center, their needs. They can't rely on themselves to soothe themselves. Um, it, it's a very difficult condition. Countertransference with paranoid personality disorder is fear, similar to cluster B. To me, 
I consider paranoid personality disorder to be cluster B. But anyway, so similar to borderline, similar to histrionic. When you're with paranoid uh, personality disorder people, and all like, especially if you're close enough to them, you're very likely to feel afraid because they're attacking you. People with paranoid personality disorder, if you get close enough to them, you'll start to notice that they're in a constant state of attacking you because they believe you're attacking them first. And so they're trying to push back on you. You might feel rejected uh, by people with paranoid personality disorder. All right. So that's cluster A in which we talked about schizoid, which is indifferent and detached. Schizotypal, which is odd and socially anxious and mild hallucinations, magical thinking. We have paranoid, which is a constant belief that you're being schemed against and fighting against that. So now let's go to cluster B. So cluster B is called the dramatic, emotional, and erratic cluster. I don't like these names. They seem judgmental, honestly. Uh, Often people with narcissism, borderline histrionic, are termed as being dramatic and emotional. And I I just – it feels judgmental to me. Um, It misses the point really. It would be like calling people with depression dramatic. Like, oh my god, you're so dramatic with your sadness. I mean, come on. And uh, you wouldn't say that, right? Because people understand, oh, it's a condition that you don't have any control over. Well, it's the same with cluster B personality disorders. People with borderline don't have any control over the fact that they feel so desperate that they must be dramatic in order to cope with life. So I wouldn't call them dramatic. I'd call them suffering, really. I'd, I'd call cluster B suffering. So the four that are considered in this cluster, which I would um, I would actually include a lot in cluster B. <laughs> I would include paranoid. I would include dependent um, for sure. Uh, passive-aggressive as well. Uh, Honestly, the whole cluster system doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Antisocial personality disorder is considered cluster B, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, honestly. So uh, it's just kind of a weird system. But anyway, uh, cluster B includes four personality disorders, antisocial, narcissistic, borderline, and histrionic. So let's go into antisocial first here, which is uh, really a lot different from the others. It's, it's, it's really a lot different from any of the personality disorders. Um, other names for this, like in the ICD-10, it's dissocial. Uh, if we were to diagnose a child with this, we call this conduct disorder. So the central trauma, and again, uh, well, so for some people with antisocial, we would characterize them as being born antisocial, that they had a disposition for psychopathy, which seems to be true in the same way that some people seem to be born schizotypal or born schizoid. With all the personality disorders, there's always a genetic factor. Uh, there's a, there's some her, you know heredity to it. Uh, you know, often borderline is said. Well, you know, it's partly genetic and partly environmental. In my experience, uh, there are some personality disorders that. I would definitely characterize as being potentially it's, – because it's hard for us to tease out cause on personality. But I, I would say that schizoids, schizotypal, antisocial, and sadistic and psychopathic probably have some uh, definite genetic components. With all the rest like borderline narcissistic, do these have dispositional antecedents that could contribute to the development of it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, meaning that for borderline, 
you might be born with a trait of just being very sensitive to other people, and that increases your likelihood. But that sensitivity, if you're raised well enough, will not develop into borderline personality disorder. Whereas some people seem to be born with some pretty strong traits that lead to antisocial and psychopathy. Um, but this is very difficult for us to know, and we do not have the technology and the science today to be, even begin to really answer that question. We're looking at correlations, uh, and of course, correlation doesn't equal causation. We're looking at, uh, you know, at, at most like a 50 to 60% genetic component there. But what does that mean exactly? You know, it's, it's just a very difficult thing to, for us to answer at this point. But it seems clear that early childhood uh, experiences have something to do, if not the majority, to do with all the personality disorders. Anyway, so antisocial personality disorder, the central harm, in addition to probably having some genetic uh, disposition, the central trauma is being harmed. They learned, people with antisocial and psychopathy, they learned that in order to attain safety, they must, one, assume they are in the process of being harmed, and two, constantly assert their power over others. So antisocial people are pretty focused on power and on control. So this results in people being very nonconformist, they do not follow the conformity of the land. They might involve themselves in various crimes as a result. That is just like, you know, uh, I deserve this or I don't really care about the law. They might be deceitful, lying without remorse, conning other people for personal gain, but often in a really clumsy manner, you know, and this goes against the, uh, you know, the movie trope that antisocial and psychopaths are geniuses. 99.9% uh, .9 of the time, your typical antisocial psychopath is very clumsy with their crimes. They almost always get caught. They almost always shoot themselves in the foot with it. Uh, people with antisocial and psychopathy are train wrecks. Their, their lives are just complete wrecks. Now, there are people perhaps lower on the spectrum who manage to deal with it more effectively to rise the ranks of a corporation, for example. And then we got to get into like, well, having a trait of antisocial and psychopathy, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean you actually have the disorder or blah, blah, blah? Anyway, people with antisocial are very impulsive and they fail to plan ahead. You know, they might just say, you know what, I'm moving to this other place or I'm going to punch this person in the face or I'm just not going to go to work today. Um, they're uh, very irresponsible as a result, and they uh, the repeating failure to sustain consistent work or financial ability. So they just they have a hard time sustaining work and this sort of thing. So they often will go from uh, job to job and this kind of thing. They're irritable and ag and aggressive. They are frequently in conflict with others. They they argue a lot. They might bully others. They might intimidate. And they might get into physical fights. They are uh, they have a disregard for the safety of self and others. Um, they might hurt other people, but also of the self. Uh, young antisocial people will jump off of a the roof of a of a house 
just because it looked interesting to them. You know, the, people with antisocial and psychopathy, they're often quite bored. And they also lack fear a lot of times, which seems to be potentially why some people develop this is because if you don't have a visceral sense of fear as a child, you will not be worried about hurting other people's feelings. There, there's a theory as to why we develop empathy that involves fear, that when you're two years old and you throw a rock at your little brother and your parent screams, it's just like, oh, my God, what did you just do? A, a jolt of fear goes through your body and you learn, oh, throwing a rock at little brother causes me fear. Now, the fear that I'm feeling is because my mom freaked out because I threw the rock. You know, I throw rock at, I want to throw rock at the head of younger brother because I just want to see what that looks like. And I also just don't like my younger brother sometimes. So I'm throwing rock and then my mom freaks out and screams and looks at me in a very disappointed way and might even grab me and put me in timeout. And that's very scary to me. And, and it's very uncomfortable for me in that moment. And then, you know, rinse and repeat that enough times. And as I pick up a rock to throw it at younger brother, I feel all that anticipatory fear. And that's perhaps one, if not the way we develop empathy for other humans is because of, of that process that is rinse and repeated. Uh, it's hard to know. But if you have no fear, then you throw a rock at younger brother Mom freaks out. You you look at mom and, and are like, oh, wow, she's really freaking out. But you don't really care on the inside. And thus, you never develop empathy. Because the next time you pick up a rock and throw it at younger brother, you're just like, yep, throwing rock at younger brother. Oh, mom freaked out again. Well, anyway. And you might even not care. Let's say your mom even puts you in timeout. Well, because you lack fear, you, you, you have a hard time planning for the future. You know, uh, the reason – one of the reasons why we have this theory is because, you know, antisocial psychopathic people, they often have a train wreck of a life, right? They, they don't plan ahead. Well, perhaps one of the reasons that we all learn how to plan ahead is because bad things happen to us and then we are very uncomfortable and, and then we're afraid of repeating that mistake. Like – uh, the first time you bounced a, a check or the first time you didn't have money in your wallet or the first time you didn't show up on time to work, something bad happens to you and it was a, it was a scary moment. And then later on, you're like, I want to avoid that fear, so I better show up on time. Well, for, if you don't have the capacity to feel fear or you have a diminished capacity to feel fear, then you lack that uh, experience of something bad happening when you didn't show up on time and thus you, you're not afraid of being late. I, I hope that makes sense. And so that's it's one of the – I think it's a pretty compelling theory. Again, it's hard to know because we just uh, – but it does lend itself towards, okay, maybe there's some disposition there. Um, and again, with all personality disorders, people with antisocial lack insight and they also lack a sense of self, um, which is you know why we would – point to personality disorder. People with antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy are often suffering quite severely. Uh, the internet likes to put, you know, oh, sociopaths are just out to get you. They're manipulators. They gaslight you. Okay, fine. They might. And they probably will, honestly, if you get close enough to them. But the notion that they laugh themselves to sleep at night thinking about how they pulled one over on you is is false. They, they're often really quite sad 
and lonely. And one of the that and that's why it lends itself towards them being traumatized and them having to learn a lesson. You know, take take a kid who, for example, has a slight diminished capacity for fear and they're traumatized growing up, you know, abused, neglected, something. And they're young and they're just like, you know what? I'm going to get harmed. Something bad is going to happen to me. And so I'm just going to assume that other people are out to get me and other people are going to harm me. And uh, my solution is to overcompensate by asserting my power and aggression over others to make them afraid of me because I don't want to be made uh, a victim. So I have to make sure everyone else around me is afraid and off kilter, and that's how I can feel safe. So counter-transference-wise, a central feature to this, along with a lot of other personality disorders, is fear. Uh, when I'm around people with antisocial, I often feel afraid. And I might also feel creeped out. You'll hear therapists often feel very creeped out by people with antisocial or conduct disorder. Like you're not standing on stable ground, like you're in a fight-or-flight situation. But also like I feel like this person is going to stalk me or kill me. There's a sense that you'll get around them. Because as you interact with them and you see how they inter- you know, how they uh, deal with the world and how they interact with you, there's this felt sense that they do not really care about you. And it's a weird thing that you can pick up on that, right? Because it's like, how do you how do you pick up on something so subtle as that? But you pick up on it pretty quick. I do anyway. And it's very creepy because you're just thinking, okay, you know, I feel like this person is capable of murdering me and chopping me into pieces and burying me somewhere. Like I feel like this person could do that. Now, if you are creeped out by a client that doesn't guarantee that they have antisocial or psychopathy or dissocial, uh, it could be for a lot of other reasons why you're being creeped out. I, I know a lot of therapists who are like, oh, my God, this person creeps me out. And you know, after we think about it and discuss it, we discover now. I think, I think it's just your own issue. <laughs> but anyway, so, so that's antisocial. All right, let's go into narcissistic personality disorder. This is fun. You know, I'm really, really kind of rattling through so much stuff. <laughs> All right, narcissistic personality disorder. All right, the central trauma to narcissism is being devalued and humiliated, made to feel worthless, not given enough attention while feeling abused and or neglected. People with narcissistic personality disorder early in life learned that in order to attain safety, they must, number one, Assume that they are in the process of being devalued and or humiliated. And two, they must consistently and constantly believe and assert that they are more important and more valued than others. So they're in hypervigilance about being devalued and they're in a constant effort to believe, to convince themselves and convince others that they are important enough to be valued and not humiliated. So this results in the following symptoms. They exaggerate their achievements. Uh, they have fantasies of achieving greatness. Um, they, are outward, they outwardly believe that they are better than others. But again, inwardly, they don't actually believe that. They require a lot of admiration. They have unreasonable expectations of special treatment from others they take advantage of others, not because they're evil, but because they believe it's the only way to get their needs met. 
their empathy is impaired. Often people will say people with narcissism lack empathy, but that is incorrect. People with narcissistic personality disorder do not lack empathy, but they have impaired empathy. Uh, people with narcissistic personality disorder are in deep, deep pain. They are suffering greatly, as with any of these personality disorders, but particularly um, you know, narcissism, borderline histrionic, avoidant, dependent, um, paranoid. These people are deeply, deeply suffering. And the way that they cope with it is through um, this constant need to you know, convince themselves and others that they're very, very special, in fact, superior. And if you're in a constant state of asserting that to yourself and others, you're not going to notice other people's feelings. Uh, people with narcissistic personality disorder, when, when you actually get them to relax on the constantly trying to convince themselves and others that they're superior, they actually care about others a great deal. In fact, they might care about each other, care about other people uh, more than other people do because they are so desperate for closeness deep down. But it's deep, deep down for some, depending on the level of pathology. People with narcissistic personality sort of are envious of others, and they might be arrogant. Uh, they're often arrogant. They lack a self, meaning that they aren't in connection with themselves. They can't soothe the self, and they lack insight. They think, well, of course I'm superior because that's just how it is. Countertransference with narcissism is fear and fight or flight. So with people with narcissistic personality disorder, you're, you're, as a therapist, you're going to feel fear and not right in the right place. All right. Let's talk about borderline. Uh, still in cluster B. So the pri I've talked about this a lot and I've, and I've talked about narcissism a lot as well. But just to summarize, people with borderline, their central trauma is being abandoned, rejected, and abused. But the central feeling is one of just utter rejection and abandonment. People with borderline learned early in life that in order to attain safety, they must, number one, assume that others are in the process of rejecting them and abandoning them, and two, make their attachment needs very noticeable to other people. So people with borderline early, early in life were abandoned uh, chronically, you know, off and on or in very significant ways. Um, and by the way, when you're being abused sexually or physically, it can very much feel like an abandonment. So even though your parents never left you, if they abused you, the central feeling to a child could have been abandonment. But anyway, so early in life, they it was safe to assume that other people were in the process of rejecting them somehow deeply, just, just deep, deep, terrible, terrible, scary rejection. And they learned that they could get some of their attachment needs met if they made their attachment needs very noticeable to other people by crying and yelling and being, you know, grandiose with themselves. So behaviors with borderline are they are very easily hurt because again, they're hypervigilant about that hurt and they see hurt when it's not necessarily there. They see abandonment when it's not necessarily there. They're preoccupied with close relationships. They fall in love very easily, even with friends, because they're so thirsty for attachment. But narcissistic people can do this too. People with borderline can be very hostile when they perceive that they're being hurt, real or imagined from others. And this hostility can be overt or hidden, hidden sometimes refer. I don't know if you hear my stomach, but I'm hungry. <laughs> it's really, I, I don't want people to think there's a, a monster behind me, you know, growling. It's actually my stomach. Um, <laughs> 
so uh, borderline hostility can be overt and very hostile and you'll, you'll know you're being attacked by someone with borderline or it can be very hidden. Sometimes on the internet, people will refer to these as quiet borderlines. Um, but there's definitely some hostility there and it can vary for sure. Uh, but to emphasize, some people with borderline will have severe hostility. Like they will go on a mission to get you um, to the point of, <clears throat> you know, abuse. You know, a lo- some amount of intimate partner violence is perpetrated by people with borderline. Uh, but not all people with borderline are violent or controlling with their spouses for sure. Um, and also suicidality. And by the way, a lot of the personality disorders involve suicidality, whether I mention it or not, but with borderline in particular. And again, with all personality disorders, people with borderline lack a connection with themselves, meaning that they don't know who they are or what they're feeling and they can't soothe the self and they lack insight into their issue. They think, yeah, of course everyone's hurting me. I don't – you know, you don't understand. People hurt me all the time. And you're like, I think you just see hurt when it's not really there. Um, the countertransference to borderline is similar to narcissistic, which is fear and fight or flight. Uh, when I've treated people with borderline, I always, always, always feel a fight or flight flutteriness in my chest. Um, obviously not all the time, but uh, but at, at some point with all borderline clients, I'll feel that. Um, uh, all right, let's go to the final cluster B disorder, which is histrionic. And I did a whole deep dive on this. But in summary, the central trauma is being ignored, not given enough attention while potentially feeling abused or neglected. So for children with histrionic, they learned early in life that in order to attain safety, they must, number one, assume that they are in the process of being ignored, and two, constantly make themselves seen to get attention. So early in life, they were being ignored, they were being um, not paid attention to, and uh, as a result, they were very, very scared and very, very attachment injured. And they learned in order to get a little bit of attachment security, they had to become histrionic. They had to become dramatic and um, they had to be very noticeable. And there's a lot of ways that histrionic people will become very noticeable. Uh, They might dress in a very noticeable way. They might speak in a noticeable way. They might be very shocking. They might be loud. They might be very sexual, not always, but uh, for some histrionic people, they will learn early in life that if they dress in a sexy way or talk in a sexy way or you know, provoke sexual feelings from others, that they will get attention. And again, the attention is equated with attachment security and the opposite of attention is equated with utter suffering and utter abuse. And so they learn that I must get people to pay attention to me, whether it's through sexuality or dressing or talking or drama or drumming up emergencies or physical ailments. They might drum up physical ailments. They might cry. They might be very reactive and suicidal. You know, they might actually dramatize suicide or uh, and or if they're suicidal, it might be totally legit because being histrionic is a very there's a lot of suffering there and, and people will often want to um, put an end to that suffering. Uh, so people with histrionic, as with all personality disorders, uh, mainly the, the ones that I've been calling real personality disorders, they lack a self, meaning they don't 
you know, they're not in connection with their emotions and they have a hard time soothing themselves and they lack insight. Uh, Countertransference with histrionic, same with borderline and narcissism is you're going to feel fear. You're going to feel, feel that, you know, for me, I feel that fluttery feeling in my chest that's that just constant or, you know, very frequent sense of anxiety, even, even when they're not being hostile. I'll just kind of feel like there's a danger in the air. All right, cluster C, and my God, I've been talking nonstop for an hour. Can you tell I like this stuff? All right, so cluster C is often called the anxious and fearful cluster. And okay, I can get behind that kind of, but I don't know. These uh, things don't really make a lot of sense to me. But anxious and fearful is is better than calling it the dramatic and emotional. You know, again, cluster B called the dramatic and emotional cluster. That seems judgmental to me. But anyway, cluster C, the anxious and fearful cluster. All right. And again, I would call all the person, you know, aside from schizoid and schizotypal, I'd call, well, even schizotypal. Aside from schizoid, I'd call all of them anxious and fearful because <laughs> they're all based on fear and maybe maybe not antisocial. Anyway, so avoidant personality disorder, I did a whole deep dive on that. But the, the central trauma to avoidant personality disorder is being rejected for who you are deep down. So, you know, you are rejected, not because of something you did, but because of who you are deep down. You are deeply flawed and you are rejectable. So as a child, these children learned that in order to attain attachment safety, they must, number one, assume that they are in the process or about to be criticized and rejected, and two, constantly avoid the possibility of being criticized and rejected. So these people with avoidant personality disorder, avoidant personality disorder, uh, is it's worded a little, it's named a little funny, um, you know, avoidant. Uh, well, uh, what people would observe is that they would avoid um, relationships, they would avoid life. Uh, but that's just a symptom of the problem. You know, the problem is they believe they're deeply flawed. That's why they're avoiding life. So it really should be called something like, um, you know, I'm. Uh, a belief that I'm deeply flawed personality, and everyone knows it personality disorder. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, people with avoidant personality disorder, they have a deep schema that that there's just something you know fundamentally wrong with them, and that they are wor- very worthy of rejection and criticism, and deep schema that everyone knows how weird they are and how wrong they are, and they have a deep schema that everyone is constantly judging them for how odd they are. So. They are 100% convinced that they are flawed, that everyone knows it, and that everyone thinks bad things about them because of it, and, and that those bad thoughts are very scary to them. Because, you know, for a lot of us, we might just be like, well, I don't know. Yeah, sure, those people think bad things about me, but what do I care? You know, but to, to the person that is avoidant, it's deeply distressing that other people are thinking bad thoughts about them. Um, this is all very much imagined, by the way. They might think that they're ugly, unfashionable, talk funny, walk funny, say weird things, believe weird things, and everyone knows it. You know, people with avoidant personality disorder, you might hear them say that uh, they can't leave the house because of how stupid their face looks or how stupid their hair looks, and there's just no way to fix it. You know, their hair will never look acceptable enough to leave the house, and thus they avoid leaving the house. Um, they beat themselves up. They might avoid jobs that involve interacting with other people. Um, 
again, with other personality disorders, they lack a self, a sense of their self, and they lack insight. And this is different from social anxiety because people with social anxiety, one, it's usually more isolated to particular social interactions and or they have insight into it. Not always, but people with social anxiety, they, they tend to say to themselves, yeah, you know what? I have social anxiety. When I, when I get around other people, I get real freaked out. And I know that it's, you know, I know no one really cares. And I know that my anxiety is excessive, but it's really hard for me to deal with my social anxiety. So people with social anxiety will often talk like that because their anxiety is something that feels like it's not really a part of who they are. Whereas avoidant personality disorder people, you can try to convince them that other people aren't judging them and they'll be like, you're crazy. You know, there's just no way that you're being truthful right now. So that's what differentiates uh, social anxiety and avoidant. Now, some people say it's those two things are on a spectrum. Uh, I did a whole thing in the deep dive on that. All right. Continuing with cluster C, we have dependent personality disorder. So the central trauma to dependent per- – and this is actually a good name, dependent, because it's actually pretty accurate – is, well, maybe incompetent personality disorder is a better name. So people with dependent personality disorder, the central trauma is they were made to feel inherently incompetent. We all are made to feel incompetent when we're children. But people with dependent personality disorder are made to feel globally incompetent, that there is nothing that they can do on their own. So these people early in life learned that in order to attain safety, uh, attachment safety and physical safety, they must, number one, assume they are in the process of screwing up or that others will see them as failing, and two, constantly avoid the possibility of being responsible and thus risk failing at something. So people with dependent personality disorder have a deep schema that they are incompetent. They're incapable of doing things on their own and that others are there to help them. And, you know, if they can't buy a car by themselves, they can't get a job, they can't work by themselves, they can't build an Ikea bed by themselves, they can't pay their bills by themselves, they can't decide on what to eat that day without other people helping them. So other behaviors are they can be fairly irresponsible, but, you know, it kind of varies. You know, some people with dependent personality disorder, perhaps lower on the spectrum, they might actually be responsible, but uh, they they just can't do things on their own, you know, like, um, and, and they'll suck people in. People with dependent personality disorder will often suck people in. If you're around someone with dependent personality disorder, you'll feel it, it's necessary to actually help them because you you just have this, but if you're around someone with dependent personality disorder, you will assume that person is incompetent. You'll 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 just know that person can't do things on their own. I and you'll feel this sucking vacuum to do things for them, and this will create this overfunction or underfunction thing that I talk about, like with Nicole and her mom on Ninety Day Fiance, and thus keep the dependent person dependent. People with dependent personality disorder can be very clingy. They can be very pleasing to others. They might have difficulty expressing or even feeling their own anger. They might be passive aggressive. I'll get into that in a second. Um, they might uh, have low. They always have low self esteem. And with other personality disorders, they lack a sense of who they are. They can't soothe themselves, and they the soothe the, 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 the self, and they also lack insight. All right. The final cluster C is obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So this one really kind of stands on its own in my book. It doesn't really fit into any of the clusters really. So the central trauma to the obsessive-compulsive personality disorder 
is that these people are made to feel inherently messy and out of control. They learned in order to attain attachment safety and physical safety when they were young, it, they must, number one, assume that they are messy and everyone knows it and that, and that something bad is going to happen. And two, that uh, they need to constantly impose order over the messiness of themselves and their world. So early in life, uh, maybe even when they were one year old because of their diaper situation, they were shamed and abused in a way that made them conclude that because they are messy, they are rejectable and uh, bad things are going to happen to them. There's a lot of different roads to becoming obsessive compulsive personality, but but uh, one of them could be because of the anal phase issues, which I won't go into that whole thing. But anyway, so the central trauma for obsessive compulsive personality disorder is that you know you are inherently messy and out of control and gross and you know imperfect, and thus you are rejectable and you are. Um, you know, made to be alone and, and unsafe. So the person is like, okay, I better constantly make sure that everything is in order around me because that's the only way I, I can attain safety. But of course, it doesn't work that way because you alienate everyone around you and then no one wants to be around you and then you don't get any of your attachment needs met. But And that's that's why we call it personality disorders because the defense will actually create many, many problems. Um, anyway, so these people have a deep schema that they are out of control, that they're dirty, and they are seen as being out of order or disgusting or imperfect or something. And behaviors that they will exhibit are they're very preoccupied with orderly, orderliness and perhaps rules. Their house might need to be perfect, and it's never quite right. Their house is never right. The way they dress, they might be very particular about what they wear and what their hair looks like, what their makeup looks like. Um, you know, plastic surgery might be something that they seek to constantly try to perfect their face. Um, and this is different from body dysmorphia, um, but one could relate the two. One could say that body dysmorphia is on a spectrum. The Their house landscaping might be something that they are very concerned about or even like their Facebook or their Instagram page. They might just be completely obsessed with making sure that that's perfect. And when it's, a, when it's not perfect, they might have extreme trauma reactivity to that. In the same way that for the borderline person, when you give a hint that you want to reject them, even though you don't want to reject them, like you don't text them back, to the borderline person, this is triggering to their traumas. To obsessive compulsive personality people, if you somehow suggest that there's something wrong with their Instagram page and that's their place where they're trying to be perfectionistic, it will, they will go in a downward spiral of shame and, and horribleness. Um, they might also impose their perfection on others and harm others in the process. Some people have parents who are obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. And the difference between obsessive-compulsive disorder and obsessive-compulsive personality disorder is that obsessive-compulsive disorder – Often people with OCD know they have OCD. They will say, yeah, there's something wrong with my brain. So we call this ego dystonic, meaning that it is 
it's uh, not considered to be part of yourself. It's considered to be kind of outside of the self and it's a disorder that's imposed on yourself. Whereas obsessive compulsive personality disorder is often egocentonic, meaning that people who have these perfections say, yeah, these are normal. These are rational. I don't understand other people that aren't this way. I, you know, I prefer to be this way um, and that kind of thing. Anyway, so they might be way too focused on particular details and harm themselves and others in the process. For example, they might be so focused on making their house look perfect that they ruin their relationships such that no one wants to come over to their house and see it and thus causing them to need to focus more on making their house look perfect. Um, so, yeah. All right. So just looking at someone and seeing that they're perfectionistic and that they're very clean, you won't necessarily know their obsessive compulsive personality. You have to understand where it comes from. It's, it's kind of hard to assess. It takes a long time to figure out. Um, and again, lack of self and lack of insight. All right. So that is, those are the 10 personality disorders in the DSM, current DSM, and the three clusters, A, B, and C. So again, to review, you have schizoid, which is indifferent and separate from humans. You have schizotypal, which is odd thinking, odd behavior, and high social anxiety, often as a result of the odd belief system. You have paranoid, which people are believe they're being schemed against constantly. You have antisocial, which is um, you know, it's kind of hard to summarize. The main thing is a lack of empathy and and a lack of caring about other people's feelings, but it's it's a number of other things as well. Um, narcissism is a trauma of being devalued and humiliated and a need to constantly um, you know, convince yourself and other people that you are superior to offset that devaluation. Borderline, which is a constant st- sense that you're being abandoned and um, a constant vigilance about making sure other people don't abandon you and signaling to other people that they're abandoning you. Histrionic is the trauma of being ignored and being made to feel unsafe, and so you constantly need to get attention in order to feel a little bit of safety. Uh, Cluster C, avoidant personality, people who are rejected for who they are deep down, and you just need to constantly avoid other people to avoid being rejected and criticized. Dependent, which is you are inherently incompetent. You can't do anything by yourself. You need other people. Obsessive compulsive is to make you feel as though you're inherently out of control and messy and dirty. All right. So uh, there are four personality disorders that may have been included in the past DSMs or are considered possibly to be considered in DSMs or um, are discussed in the literature. And the first one I'll talk about is passive aggressive personality disorder. This actually used to be included in the DSM in various different forms um, throughout the years. And it's similar to uh, dependent, but it's quite different. And I did a whole deep dive on it. You can listen to that as a patron. In a nutshell, these people with passive aggressive personality disorder, they learned that they could not express their anger or their assertiveness. They constantly feel as though they're being treated unfairly by others. So the central trauma to someone with passive aggression is early in life, they were being treated unfairly by their parents or you know caretakers. And they would express their displeasure or their anger, and they would be punished even more. So they learned early in life, like at 18 months, that they could not express anger directly because it just made matters much worse. And they were in a very consistent world of being treated unfairly. And so they they believe they're being treated unfairly, 
and they're even though they're not, you know, as a, when they grow up to become an, when they were a kid, they can assume that because it actually is true. But as an adult, they're they're walking around this constant sense that the world is out to get. It's sort of similar to paranoia, but it's different, and they cannot express their assertiveness and anger directly. They must constantly please other people, but they are deeply anger, angry. Dependent people also have a lot of suppressed anger, but passive-aggressive personality people have a vast sea of anger, so much anger, and it is not being expressed. When you meet passive-aggressive personality people, you will think of them as the nicest human beings on the planet. In fact, they will go out of their way to make sure that you see them as nice and pleasing and wonderful and not angry and accepting of you. But deep down, they are the most hostile people on the planet. They are so, so angry. And they will express that hostility in a number of different ways. They might be extremely adept at putting you down in ways that you do not detect but you feel. That's where this word passive aggressive comes from is, you know, and it's never like they say on the internet, you know, the internet, they'll say passive aggressive is like something like, um, oh, what a cute um, outfit you have on. I remember when I was in college and I went to secondhand stores too. Okay. So on one hand, they're saying, I like your outfit. On the other hand, they're saying, it looks like it come it came from a secondhand store. So it's fine if culture wants to call that passive aggression. That's fine. But to me, that's just straight up aggression. I mean, there's no hidden nature. It's slightly hidden. It's like a skew aggression, but it's not hidden. I mean, passive aggressive personality disorder, you'll never see it. it. It will blow right past you and you'll never know the person was being hostile towards you, but you will feel fear. The countertransference with passive aggression is the same with borderline narcissistic histrionic. You will feel fight or flight response. When I'm around passive aggressive people, not always, but often, I will feel so it depends. So there's a lot of different types of I do this I talked about this in a deep dive, but there are two types of passive aggressive personality people. The the first type is people that I will absolutely be terrified constantly around them. The other type is I'm never terrified around them. And there's reasons why that is. You know, I consider them to be different subtypes of passive-aggressive personality. But anyway, so passive-aggressive personality disorder, the central feature, though, is that they will, they will get you somehow. They will, they will harm you, either, again, through subtle put-downs. Uh, they might cheat on you if you're you know, involved in a relationship with them. They might break into your computer. I actually had someone write into the podcast talking about that, about – how she, with people close to her, she would break, she would hack into their computer or break into their office and rummage around in their desk and stuff. And I don't know if that emailer was passive aggressive, but that is a example of that. They might secretly spread lies about you. They might literally even poison your coffee as a way of trying to get you. People with passive aggressive personality disorder, like I said, they are deeply angry and deeply hostile and they want to get you. And they're kind of not aware of it. Um, but on the surface, they're extremely nice and everyone loves them. But the closer you get to someone with passive-aggressive personality, the more you will realize, oh, my God, this person is mean and lacks empathy or has impaired empathy, like I said. 
people with passive aggressive personality disorder uh, are often dependent, indecisive, and needy. This is why it's considered to be very close to dependent personality disorder. And in fact, in past DSMs, they would actually lump all these together. They would say passive aggressive personality disorder, dependent type, passive aggressive personality disorder, aggressive type. You know, they had all these different types. I, I go into the whole thing on the on the deep dive. And I hear a dog barking outside, and I think it might be my puppy. Go to uh, our Facebook page or our Instagram if you want to see pictures of our new puppy. Is that her barking? <laughs> I think it, my wife's taking care of her while I'm podcasting. Um, all right, so uh, pa- psychopathic personality disorder. So it's similar to antisocial personality disorder. It's not included in the DSM. One way to think about psychopathic personality disorder or psychopathy is – it's a subset of antisocial personality disorder. There's debate around that, but that's kind of how I see it. And I'll just rattle off the hair uh, items that are used to identify people with uh, psychopathy. And there's a lot of debate in the field about how to even define psychopathy, but the, the general consensus is to define it with the following 20 items. So glib and superficial charm, meaning that they are charming – uh, without uh, good intent, they're they're trying to trick you by being charming. They're grandiose about their entitlement uh, and about themselves. They have a need for stimulation. They they can get easily bored. They will lie pathologically, meaning that they will lie even though they are very easily caught. They are cunning and manipulative. They you know they're really trying to get you. They lack remorse or guilt. Meaning they don't, you know, they don't have empathy. They're they're callous and they lack empathy. They have shallow affect, meaning that they have superficial emotional responsiveness. They have a parasitic lifestyle, meaning that they're irresponsible and they will mooch off others because their life is a train wreck. They have poor behavioral controls. They're you know meaning that they're impulsive and they 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 can't edit their behavior well. And they're frequently shooting themselves in the foot because of it. They will be sexually promiscuous, potentially, not always. They have early behavior problems, meaning that from a very early age, they lacked empathy or um, broke rules or did sadistic things when they were young. Uh, They lack realistic long-term goals. They have a failure to accept responsibility for their own actions, you know, lack of remorse. They have potentially short-term marital relationships, and um, there are some other things that go into the crimes, but um, that's that's a psychopath. So very similar to antisocial, but kind of particular. More of uh, someone who is in a constant state of trying to con other people and someone who their life is absolutely an absolute train wreck. When you actually look at the case studies of people who are diagnosed with antisocial versus the people who are diagnosed with psychopathic personality, you will begin to see that there's there's a general difference but definite overlap. And some people use them interchangeably. I often will use them interchangeably. I'll say antisocial and psycho- psychopathic or psychopathy or a psychopath in the same you know category. Anyway, so let's go to sadistic personality disorder. So this one should be included because often – so. There are people, and we know this, that they absolutely take pleasure in harming others. 
um, not in a play way, like you know, sadomasochism, like S and M sexually is play. It's playing with sadism, playing with masochism. It's consensual S and M, right? But there are people out there who have legit sadism, and they don't want to play. They want to actually harm other people, and they might even be kind of obsessed with harming others throughout the day. They like to con people out of their money or um, to do things. They want to manipulate others. They they will harm animals almost always because animals are defenseless. They'll harm children because children are e- more easily victimized. They might uh, harm others through sex. There are plenty of people uh, who are sexual abusers of children who would absolutely be accurately conceptualized by me, in my opinion, as having sadistic personality disorder. Um, now, some people abuse children for other reasons, but there's some people out there that it's just their thing. You know, in the same way that for me, I like to podcast, I like to go on walks, I like to hang out with my wife, I like to hang out with my animals, <laughs> I like to talk with my friends, I like to play video games, you know. I like to play movie trivia with my wife. I like to have a good meal. I like to watch TV with my wife. Um, those are things that I like to do. Well, sadistic personality people, they like to harm others. That's what, you know, they wake up in the morning and they're just like, ooh, you know, how am I going to get other people? And with the internet, it's easy for them now. A lot of trolls, a lot of, a lot of you know, uh, research has shown that a lot of the harm that is happening on the internet is done by a very small percentage of the population. Because imagine you get off on hurting other people. Well, to do it in person, you know, the other person could could get you back. They call the cops on you. They could out you. But anonymous on the internet, you can abuse millions of people a day and get so much pleasure from that. So this is a thing, right? We understand this. It's researchable. Uh, these people exist. Um, you know, Ted Bundy was like this. Jeffrey Dahmer was like this. And to characterize them as a psychopath or having antisocial really misses the mark because people with antisocial and psychopathy do not necessarily take pleasure in harming other people. There are a lot of people who are on the psychopathic spectrum, on the antisocial spectrum, that will never uh, kill someone and eat them, for example, They that will never lure them and then uh, sexually assault them while they're alive and then kill them. You know, uh, sadism is a very particular specific thing that should have its own category. Now, it's a rare thing. It's a, it's rare to be sadistic, but it's common enough. So there, I don't know why. It used to be talked about in the literature a lot more, but it, it I don't like the fact that antisocial and psychopathy – People will associate it with sadism, but it's it's not. Now, they are related for sure. I mean, psychopaths and antisocial people have a high com- comorbidity with sadism, but not necessarily, right? So uh, this should be a personality disorder, and you'll hear me sometimes refer to sadism personality disorder or sexual sadism. Uh, this is what I'm talking about, and it should be differentiated anyway. The last personality disorder worth discussing is masochistic personality disorder. This is someone who is very self-defeating and very self-destructive. They are on a mission every day to ruin their lives. They sabotage themselves like they finally get that job, but then they steal money from the cash register. 
uh, even though they know that there are cameras filming them and then they get fired. Or they pick abusive partners. Maybe that's a common thing. They, they very frequently will marry people who are abusive to them. They might not take care of their health even though they absolutely know they should. Maybe they drink or eat themselves to oblivion and death. And people with masochistic personality disorder, they're suspicious of others who are nice to them and they're not comfortable with it. People with masochistic personality disorder, it's not talked about enough and I don't talk about it enough probably. But people with a masochistic personality disorder, they assume that the world is going to hurt them and they might as well get out ahead of it and hurt themselves first. They also probably believe that they deserve to be hurt. So these people are uh, have a deep schema that they absolutely deserve constant punishment. And if the world isn't going to punish them, you know, if they can't engineer the world to punish them, then they'll just punish themselves. And uh, when you, you know, talk with people like this, you'll just be like, well, why did you take the money from the till? And they'll just be like, I don't know. I don't know why I did it. And you'd be like, well, you know, you knew you were being filmed, right? And they're like, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just really wanted the money. Well, did you know that you're going to get fired? Yeah, I, you know, I th- but and then when you get deeper into it, they'll just be like, well, you know, I don't know. I didn't really deserve the job anyway. And I was going to screw it up eventually anyway. So what does it matter? Um, that kind of thing. Very self-defeating and very low self-esteem. And they were treated in a way early in life that made them feel this way. They were probably punished uh, unrelentingly. Is that a word? Uh, consistently and just, you know, without any relenting. <laughs> I'm trying to work in that word. Um, and they just developed this belief. I was like, oh, okay, I, I guess I deserve to be punished. Uh, I'm going to be punished. I'm a bad person. And someone's got to abuse me. Might as well be myself. And it's largely unconscious, but um, it's absolutely a thing. And that masochistic personality disorder doesn't fit neatly into into any of the other categories, right? I mean, you, you can't really point to another personality disorder that even really comes close to masochistic. I mean, certainly people with uh, borderline narcissism, psychopathy, antisocial, obsessive compulsive, they will end up sabotaging themselves for sure. But they're not that's a secondary effect of their trauma and their defenses for masochistic people. It's central to them, the self-destruction. All right. So those are the 14 personality disorders. There are some others, but really when you look at them, uh, they're, they're very easily subsumed into one of the other, other categories. So what do you think? Wow. How long did I talk for? Hour and a half. I felt like longer. Maybe I should eat now because my stomach is uh, growling. Actually, my stomach stopped growling because it's just like I give up. <laughs> um, yeah. So to review, schizoid, schizotypal, paranoid, antisocial, narcissistic, borderline, histrionic, avoidant, dependent, obsessive compulsive, passive aggressive, psychopathic, sadistic, and masochistic. Those are the personality disorders as I see them. Um, oh, did I go? I didn't go into the countertransference of – okay. So let me do that. All right. So – Avoidant personality disorder people, again, they feel they are rejectable and deeply, deeply flawed. And so they assume they're ugly or unfashionable or everyone knows they're weird. And they're just like, you know, I just need to avoid being around other people because they're going to get me. 
Um, when you work with someone who has avoidant personality disorder, you will feel like you don't matter. You will f- because they believe you. They believe that you think that they don't that there's something wrong with them, and so they're trying to protect themselves from you by distancing from you. And one and, it's, and avoidant people have a lot of different ways to uh, avoid when they're forced to be with people. Sometimes they will just act invisible. Like they won't have any facial expression. They'll stand very still. They don't say much. Um, So there's that style. Another style, which might overlap, is when you talk to them, they might give you this sort of pushback where, you know, you ask them a question like, how are you doing today? And they'll be like, long pause. They'll be like, "Um, I don't know. Why do you ask? I, I don't I don't understand the question. It's it, by asking in that way, by you know, by answering the question that way, you're answering the question, but you're also giving this clear message of get away from me. You know, you know, get I don't want to be near you. And it can feel very bad being around avoidant personality sort of people. So uh, not always, but um, you might also uh, find yourself with avoidant personality people. Just feeling like you don't even notice them, you know they're the opposite of histrionic. You might feel like um, if you're working with them, or say you're working with a family and one of the members has avoidant personality, you might forget that they're even in the room because they're so good at avoiding and becoming invisible. Um, dependent personality disorder people, again, these people are in. They feel inherently incompetent and dependent on others. With these people, you will oh, – I think I said this. You will feel a vacuum uh, – uh, you know, you'll be very much sucked in to telling them what to do. As a therapist, if you are working with a dependent personality person, you will find yourself wanting to say or even saying a lot of advice. You'll be telling them, well, maybe you should do this and maybe you should do that. Very compelling. You'll also feel like you're a good therapist because – when clients depend on us therapists, it feels like we're doing our job, you know what I mean? But it's very seductive. And deep down, the dependent personality person doesn't like being told what to do, um, which is similar to the passive aggressive. All right. Obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Um, it, these people don't usually go to therapy, but countertransference wise, you're going to feel very frustrated with their perfection. You're going to just be like, why are you so inflexible? You'll feel critical of them, just like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) That you constantly have to worry about the way you dress and the way you look. It's just, you know, you feel critical of them. There's other things. You might actually also feel afraid of them, uh, depending on how they present, but um, that's what I'll say about that. Passive-aggressive personality people, like I said, there's two different countertransferences that I found. One is this deep fear, similar to borderline narcissism, histrionic, paranoid. Uh, where you have no idea why, but you have a constant fluttering of anxiety in your chest. The other possibility is you just feel like they're very nice, and you might actually feel like a very good therapist because they're very pleasing, passive-aggressive people on the outside. On the inside, they're not. Um, Psychopathic, you're going to feel similar to antisocial, creeped out and afraid. Sadistic, same, creeped out and afraid. Masochistic, you're going to feel judgmental of them. You're just going to be like, what is wrong with you? You are a screw up. Why do you keep 
defeating your life? Why do you make those dumb choices? You make bad choices. We have to work on your decision-making. And that is not the issue to, to work on. So all these countertransferences will obscure the reality of the disorder from the clinician. It will also compel behaviors towards the ther- client that is unproductive. You know, if you're with someone with narcissistic, you will feel shut out. Uh, that, and I, I should mention that. People with narcissism will make their therapist feel like they're shut out. People with narcissistic personality disorder, when you're around them, you'll, you'll have a deep sense of inadequacy like you don't – because, you know, they're asserting their superiority over you. Uh, but it might be very subtle. You know, they might just say something like like, a, like one subtle thing. Not always, but at the beginning of the session, narcissistic person might say something like, yeah, so I was thinking about what I wanted to talk with you today and I don't know. I feel like there isn't really much to talk about. Um, I, I don't. I don't really know what to say to you. Okay, so the content of what the client is saying is they don't know what to say to to the therapist. But the underlying emotional message is, I don't think you're very useful to me as a therapist, and thus I can't really think of why I want to even talk to you. Okay, narcissistic people don't often go to therapy. They sometimes do. Um, because they have a hard time depending on others. And, of course, admitting that there's something wrong with them is very, very um, dysregulating to them, extremely dysregulating. So, um, But that's another thing about narcissistic is they will – they'll make you feel like you don't matter and that you're inadequate um, and that there's really no point to you being a therapist. <laughs> um, borderline people can absolutely make you feel that way as well. Histrionic people can make you feel that way as well. All right, I think that covers countertransference. Now, let's just – I'm going to talk briefly about treatment. Of course, you know, listen to my deep dives on these to get the full skinny. But the – why do we say that, the full skinny? I'm sure there's some history there. But anyway, treatment for a lot of these, not all, like schizotypal. I don't know if it fits in schizoid. But the – and uh, so I'm going to categorize by treatment. I'm going to say schizoid and schizotypal, I don't know what to say about that. Um that's those are tough. For sure, therapy can help, but it's complicated. Antisocial psychopathy and, and sadism—that's also in another category. Uh, trying to teach someone to have empathy—you know—that's that, a hard thing because that's at the that's the central feature of their problem is that they don't care about other human beings. So, you know, how do you get them to do that? And are those things actually related to trauma, or is it? Just the way they were raised, you know, it's hard to know. Okay. But let's look at paranoid, narcissistic, borderline histrionic, avoidant, dependent, obsessive-compulsive, passive-aggressive, and masochistic. Those, I'm going to say, are all related to trauma for sure in my experience. And thus, when we treat them, we want to treat that trauma. And we want to provide long-term, relational, uh, intimate therapy to provide a corrective experience for that. So for the paranoid person, we want to... Uh, have them realize that I am not scheming against them, that they can trust me. For the narcissistic person, I want to value them in a very uncomplicated way and make them feel very worthwhile. And that can be very hard because narcissistic people can be very off-putting, and so it's hard to compliment them and be with them. But it needs to be fundamental. It shouldn't be complimenting their 
you know, the thing that they're narcissistic about. It's like, look at my job. I'm so awesome. I mean, you can absolutely entertain that. But what you're trying to do is get deeper and say, you are worthwhile. You're a good person. To the borderline person, you want to provide the corrective experience that they are not going to be abandoned and that you are a consistent attachment figure in their life. And there's a lot of wonderful things that can happen from from that. For a histrionic person, you want to make them feel like they matter and that they are seen fundamentally and that and that they are important. For the avoidant person, you want to provide a corrective experience over time to let them know that they are not weird, that they are not flawed, that they are not wrong deep down, that they are a good person and that no one is criticizing them really. To the dependent person, you want to make them feel like they can do things on their own, that they are competent, that they are capable. You know, you hear me for those that watch my reaction videos, the Nicole and mom thing, I talk about this all the time. With an obsessive compulsive personality, the corrective experience is to make them feel like they are safe even though they are out of control. With passive aggressive, you want to make them feel like uh, you want to treat them very fairly and you want them you want to be you want to create a space where they can express their anger and assertiveness in a way that they don't get punished. To the masochistic person, you want to have a corrective experience where they aren't being punished, where you show them that they do not deserve to be punished. So those are the corrective experiences. But with schizoid, you know, it's hard to know because it's like those people, they don't want to be around people and they don't care. So why would we force therapy on them? It's sort of a question, you know, and there's nuances there, of course. Schizotypal, yeah, it seems kind of like mild schizophrenia to me. And there's not really – you can't do a corrective experience for schizophrenia to help to alleviate the symptoms. You know, it's it's just going to happen. Schizotypal, is that the same? Yeah, I don't know. Um, now, what I tried to do with schizotypal was try to teach them that I was not judging them and that I accepted them because that seemed to be a pretty big feature for them. But I don't know how much it worked, honestly because of their odd way of thinking. Antisocial, psychopathic, uh, sociopathy, sadistic. Uh, what's the corrective experience there? Hard to know. Hard to know if that anything's going to help with that. Um, hard to know if that's really what happened to them. Um, I have worked with people like that before, and uh, it's not like they don't have other kinds of traumas. You know, Someone with antisocial, it's not like that encapsulates their entire issue. They, they could also be depressed. They could also be anxious. They could also have some other personality disorder, for example. Um, so I might treat those other things. But how do I give someone the capacity for for empathy? You know, there's a lot of research on that. And um, I've had moments where I have believed, you know, I've treated psychopaths and believed that I was helping them to develop some empathy or at least a pseudo empathy, like a proxy for an empathy so that they could function in life. Because it Again, the big misconception about psychopaths is like they're just laughing themselves to sleep every night. Like, ha, ha, ha. They're not. They're suffering. Their lives are falling down the tubes and they don't know why. And when a clinician like me looks at them, it's like I can tell you why. It's because you have psychopathic personality, which means that you don't notice when you're hurting other people. <laughs> you have a very weird sense of morals that – is ending up getting your life to go down the tubes because everyone's reacting against you because of the way you're treating other people because you don't notice that you're treating other people badly. And so 
I will work with people like that and I'll just be like, here is, you know, here's the way for the way forward. You have to, you have to remember that you don't have a sense. It's like you're colorblind to other people's feelings. And so we're going to have to, you're going to have to assume that other feelings are out there, even though you can't really feel them such that your life can be less of a train wreck. I've done that with people before, a conduct disorder with kids and, and with adults. Um, eh, but is that really healing someone? Is that really therapy or is that just sort of guidance, you know, which, you know, is a form of therapy, but I don't know, you know, there's a, there's a, maybe in 10 years, I'll have a completely different view on all this. If I did this episode 10 years ago, it's weird to think I was doing this podcast 10 years ago, even 12 years ago. Um, I would have talked about this in a much different way. My understanding of personality disorders has has advanced since then. Now, back then, I understood borderline pretty well. Um, I've understood borderline from the beginning of my career because I had some very important borderline clients in the beginning of my career that accelerated my understanding of that disorder. But 10 years ago, the other disorders, probably not too much felt experience around them. Now, uh, after you know treating a lot of people, more people, and studying a lot more, I have a much greater sense of it. 10 years, maybe my sense of it will change. So stay tuned <laughs> for another 10 years. All right, everyone out there, let me know what you think. Uh, I've been talking Yammering for almost two hours and I've said a lot of different things. What are your experiences? I'd, I'd be curious, you know, if you've, ex- you know, maybe as you're reading, you know, listening to this, you're just like, oh, I think my brother might be masochistic. You know, what do you think about this? And, you know, give me a story because I, you know, I'd like to hear your stories and because it, it helps me to, to learn and you know, puts me in contact with you. This is a pretty important episode to me, I guess is my point. So if if you're, if you haven't emailed before, <laughs> go to the website, go to the contact page, email me. for. And by the way, everyone, you need to do it there um, for legal reasons and ethical reasons. You don't ever email me to the other email addresses you might know from me. Always go to the website. It always needs to go there. All right. Thanks for joining me on this journey. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.